0: Well, good morning. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to begin in verse number 50. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. It's so good to see everybody here. I have really enjoyed teaching on the resurrection. It's been a wonderful uh, just exercise in studying the resurrection, thinking about that, beholding that, going through scriptures. I'm sure you've enjoyed it as well. Uh, it's it's you know it's the hope that we live for i know nobody's counting but in case you're wondering this is sermon number 47 on 1 Corinthians next week we will finish 1 Corinthians lord willing sermon number 48 and then we'll move on to something else but um but uh, it's been uh, it's been good going through 1 Corinthians you ever heard the i'm sure all of you have heard the phrase He's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. You ever heard that? My, when I was a child, one of my pastors used to say that all the time, don't be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. I know you understand the sentiment of that expression, don't you, where uh, the idea is that the person who thinks about heaven all the time has her head in the clouds, You know, they don't get their hands dirty, uh, they don't think about others, that sort of thing. Um, but this couldn't be further from the truth, could it? Now, the resurrection, uh, it's the great Christian hope. It, uh, praising God in anticipation of the resurrection is is something that we do on a daily basis. And Paul proclaims in the passage that we're about ready to read, a, a massive, great transformation that um, the raising of God's saints will bring, and it gives. He gives us an exhortation then for daily living at the very end of the chapter. And we, we live as we live daily, we live and work and, and do all these things in the hope of the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so the resurrection day, it's a day of transformation and victory, isn't it? It is. And, the, and that hope should motivate us and inspire us and... And impel us to devotion and and to service. And so let's stand as we uh, look at the last passage uh, in 1 Corinthians on the resurrection, verse number 50. So I tell you this, brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that he's emphatic here. They cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable perishable body perishable body there we go look at the word must it is necessary it must put on imperishable But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, now here's his conclusion. What are we to do in regards to the coming resurrection? My beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great passage the great few weeks that we've had just looking at the resurrection, looking at the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that, that hope that, that uh, motivates us. And frankly, Lord, I, I would wish that you would come back right now. I cannot wait to be transformed. I cannot wait to see your face. And I pray that uh, we will all have that motive. And that will be what motivates every action that we do. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. So, although he's been laboring the point of the resurrection all throughout this uh, chapter, uh, Paul anticipates the Corinthians still don't quite get it. Uh, be, remember, this is, this is completely opposite their worldview. They're saved out of paganism, and the paganism taught that there is no bodily existence after death. Because the body is a, is a prison. Remember that. Remember so this is 180 degrees out of sync with the worldview. And so Paul anticipates that they don't get it. And so he says, look at verse number 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers. You, you see that phrase, I tell you this? It could be translated, what I mean is this, brothers. This is what I'm trying to say. He senses that even though he's worked hard at explaining the truth, some more explanation might be necessary. What I mean is this, brothers. This is the first thing I want you to see. And he's urging them, and he's urging us to comprehend the truth. And and what is that truth that he's urging us to comprehend? It is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. There is no way that flesh and blood will go into, as it's currently constituted, will go into eternity there's no way flesh and blood describes our current condition as human beings bodies that die and decay under the curse of sin even Christ's own body think about this even Christ's own body that was flesh and blood had to be transformed before he went into heaven you ever thought about that it had to be um, before he could return to the Father, he had to have an eternal body, the one that we spent a lot of time on last week. Our bodies are perishable. They have an expiration date. And perishable, perishable bodies are not suited to inherit the imperishable. So our bodies will have to be different. We, we talked about that, as I said last week. Now, after stating this main thesis right here in the negative, he makes an assertion to overcome a challenge. And, and here's the challenge. Here it is. If flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, then what happens to the living when Christ returns? And so, what we're going to be looking at in part today is what happens to the living at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, that's, that's the question. And he answers the question by saying, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, a mystery in the New Testament is not like Sherlock Holmes. It's not, it's not well, we've got to pick up these clues. When, in the New Testament, mystery refers to something that has been hidden before and, and unknown and is now revealed. The gospel was a mystery to the Old Testament people. And as the New Testament unfolded, more mysteries were un, unfolded. And Paul did several of them in his epistles. And so what is the mystery? The mystery, don't miss this, the mystery is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming. And he, he lays out three things about the second coming of Jesus Christ that are essential when it, comes, when it pertains to us and change in our bodies. So we're going to see this as he he talks about this. At the second coming, the first thing that we are going to experience is a universal change. Universal change for every Christian, for the dead as well as the living. Look at verse number 51 with me. We shall not all sleep. Okay, what is sleep? Sleep is a metaphor for the death of Christians. Not all of us are going to die And be dead at the second coming of Jesus Christ. But what does he say? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We will not all sleep, he says, but we will all be changed. Some will survive. Some will be alive at the second coming of Jesus Christ when he returns. Others will have been dead for many years when the Savior comes. But whether dead or alive... We will all be marvelously transformed on that day. It'll be a universal change. The second thing that he says is that it will be an immediate change. Look at this. He says in verse 52, it's instantaneous. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last um, trumpet. That word moment, in a moment, it's, it's the word "atmos." We understand the word atom, don't we? Uh, it, it's it's a word used to describe the smallest indivisible indivisible particle. Now we've advanced beyond the atom in our scientific exploration, but the smallest indivisible part of time, atmos atmosphere we get we get from that. The smallest conceivable time imaginable is all it will take to. Be changed. There will be no process. <clears throat> there will be no gradual morphing from one thing to another, like the Incredible Hulk or something like that. Um, it, it it will only take a a an instant, in a blink, in in uh, the blink of an eyelid. He says. Uh, We will all be utterly and thoroughly and gloriously transformed to be like our Savior in his glorified body. We could use the term nanosecond if we wanted to. In a nanosecond, we will be transformed and we'll go from what I'm looking at now, no offense, nothing meant by that, to everybody being absolutely 100% glorified like Jesus Christ, that fast. It'll be a universal change, and it'll be an immediate change. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. This is the part that I get really excited about. You ready? Sanctification, our growth in grace and holiness, is slow and painful. Are you with me on that? You're right there, right? I was thinking about that this morning when I was getting ready, just saying, Lord, I wish I could just shed this body of sin. Just not ever be tempted again. It's slow and painful. And we inch forward every day. And we strive every day with the Spirit's power to become more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But upon our glorification, that changes just like that in a nanosecond. Won't that be glorious? I cannot wait for that. The the third assertion that Paul makes about about the second coming is that we will experience final change. He says it'll be climactic or final. The timing, he says, is what? When? It's at the last trumpet. The last trumpet. There's one last trumpet. Scripture talks about that last trumpet quite a bit, doesn't it? For example, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, the same event is being described here. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Isaiah, the prophet, anticipates that same trumpet summoning all of God's people to himself in Isaiah 27. And in that day, a great trumpet shall be blown. And what happens? What happens in that great trumpet? And those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain of Jerusalem. Now, get the picture. This is figurative language. And he says, At the last day, the great day, the final trumpet the extent of the known world that they, they knew of. I mean, they knew of more, but it encompasses everything from Assyria all the way up here to Egypt all the way down here. And everything in between, those two locations will come gather at the mountain of God. And by the way, the mountain of God is anywhere where God is, where his presence is, is it's a symbolic thing here. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John receives a vision of seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet is the last one to sound. You remember that? Um, Christ will return for consummation of the ages. And John writes this in Revelation 11. He says, then the seventh seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven. And look at what they say. Look at what they say. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Isn't that finality? That trumpet sounds, boom, there's a finality. We're into eternity, and everything has changed. And so that trumpet blowing announces the last day. When therefore the trumpet sounds, then in a split second, faster than you can blink your eye, The dead will rise imperishable, and they will never die again. They will never experience uh, death, and the living will experience a complete metamorphosis. Unimaginable, isn't it? The most wonderful thing about that last day, though, is this. We will finally be like Jesus. Finally. Our goal every day should be to follow Christ's example, shouldn't it? And bring every thought into captivity to him. As we mortify our sin, we want to experience something of the victory that waits us, don't we? But on then on that day, in an instant, we will completely and entirely be like Jesus and forever with the Lord. And so that that is the... Um, the, the necessity. Let's talk about the, the victory of our transformation. Paul goes on to look at the victory in, in verse number 52. He, he looks at our transformation in terms of victory, and we see three descriptions of this final victory. First of all, it's necessary. Verse number 52. For this perishable body must do what? It's must. Must, must. It's necessary. The perishable body must put on imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. It is absolutely necessary at the present for the present spiritual body to put on the imperishable. The body subject to death and decay must be clothed with a body that cannot fall under the power of death. No alternative exists. The human body, as it's currently constituted, cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Cannot enter the kingdom of God. When Jesus Christ comes back, boom, when he comes back in that second coming, the body that you currently have cannot proceed any further into the kingdom. It's, it's uh, like putting on a garment. The phrase, I'm going to talk about that, is put on. It's clothed with. It's like we take off the old robe to be wrapped in a new one. Our our old ensemble will perish and decay, but our new garment is incorruptible and imperishable and immortal. And so you can almost say this, the the, the body that you're looking at right now, it's the old robe. It's the mantle of death. And when Christ comes back, we'll have a new one, And it's a cloak of everlasting life. And so it's a necessary victory in our transformation. But secondly, it's a scripture-fulfilling victory. Look at God's word in verse number 54. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Now note what he says. He's saying that this Old Testament verse is a prophecy that gets fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so I want you to see that by turning back to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, where the scripture is fulfilled. This expression is drawn from verse number eight of Isaiah 25. But I want you to see what what occurs here. And, and what occurs here was partially the topic of one of my uh, emails this week, one of my devotions, as I was studying this. This expression drawn from Isaiah 25. What you have in, in Isaiah 24, 25 is God is judging the whole earth. And, and none will escape. That, that's what's going on in chapter 24. Chapter number 25 God in his perfect unfailing faithfulness not only brings about the destruction that we see in chapter 24 and in chapter 25, look at verse number 2, there's a destruction in, chap, in verse number 2, but in verses 3 to 5, there's deliverance. He, he faithfully delivers his own. And in verse number 6, my favorite part, right, if you're hungry this morning, if you didn't eat breakfast You have a feast. He will provide a feast on Mount Zion. Mount Zion. Now remember, Paul is saying that this is going to be fulfilled when? At the second coming, okay? And then the New Testament. What does the New Testament call this feast that we see here in Isaiah 25? It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, isn't it? So we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. When the Lord hosts this feast... What will happen in verse number eight? Death will be swallowed up in victory. Death will be swallowed up forever and cause everyone to rejoice. You see? Wonderful, wonderful passage of Scripture. You can turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. What a terrible opponent death has been, hasn't it? Do you realize that every time death has entered the ring with with a human, he's won. Every single time. Our loved ones have fallen and he still stands. Our friends, our mothers, our fathers, our brothers, our sisters, our children have fallen and death has defeated them. We sang about it today, didn't we? To be sure, sometimes we, we seem to prevail for a round or two, don't we? We're in remission. Or um, uh, we, we had the artery fixed, and so uh, we, we're, we got a little more life. Or they treated the infection. We did our tour duties duty while others fell to the bullets of the enemy. We survived, and we feel that relief Death has, has swung at us and we've dodged the blow for a time. But we know, we know that eventually death will win the fight, don't we? Death will get the victory. And that is what we see going on in verse number 55 of, cha- of chapter 15. Because what then happens is, Knowing that death has reigned for all of human history, Paul mocks death with two rhetorical questions. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? These, these two quotes, by the way, come from Hosea chapter 13 and verse number 14. Wonderful passage. I don't, I don't have the time to talk about that today, but it's a wonderful what he does. He literally takes an Old Testament passage. Go there sometime, maybe this afternoon, and he flips it on its head. He turns it over and says, oh, death, he's mocking death. You have no more sting. Oh, oh, death, you have no more victory. Paul Barnett, who's a commentator, said this, Death is like a schoolyard bully before whom other children cowered until a stronger one came along and defeated him, giving all others freedom and hope. He's been a bully But you need never to fear him. He's been defeated. There's freedom and hope for all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? What a wonderful promise it is. Death is a schoolyard bully that will be defeated by someone who's stronger, and that is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But there's a third part of our victory and our transformation. It's a sting-removing victory. Look at verse number 56. 56, the sting of death is what? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. You know what the real sting of death is? Unforgiven sin. It's, It's standing before God at last with a life that is utterly unrepentant. Under sanction and under penalty of the law. That's the real sting of death. We, many people will stand before the Lord who have worshiped ourselves and not our creator. We, we have filled our, our eyes with the idols of success. We have used the name of Jesus to curse others while we sought to make a name only for ourselves. We thought Sunday a day for our own pleasure. And if and when we came to church, It was simply to network and to reinforce our business partnerships. We dishonored our parents. We were hateful and violent and held grudges. We lusted after others. Our phones, our laptops are filled with filth. We wanted to take shortcuts to wealth. We cheated on our taxes. We were involved in shady deals. We took what did not belong to us. We told lies. We were dreadful gossips. We could never stop trying to have what other people have. Always driven to keep up with the neighbors, to show ourselves uh, successful by the accumulation of stuff. As if man's life really did consist of the things that he owned. And we never saw that our, our offense, that our sins were in the sight of a holy God. We never saw it, We never knew that we'd stand before him one day and give an account until the trumpet sounds, and we did. And then Paul says, then if that's us, and this is what he's saying, if that's us, we will feel the sting of death. We will feel the terrible sting of death. We will feel the weight of our sin, the terrible weight condemning us in the sight of God. What a sting death holds as we contemplate the language and we we feel the gravity of it, notice something about Paul. He's not trembling. Paul instead is rejoicing. What does he say? He says, thanks be to God. He sings. How can you sing and celebrate the dreadful shadow of death cast over you As we contemplate the sting, the poison of death, the horror of it, what is there to be thankful for? Well, let's keep reading and see, verse number 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, and there's the answer right there. Through Jesus, he gives it to us so that death might be defeated, so that we might triumph, It's a gift in Jesus, and he gives it to us. So no wonder he sings, Thanks be to God. Death is swallowed up by victory. Where is your victory? Where's your sting now, death? It's gone. Thanks be to Jesus Christ who took it all away. Jesus has triumphed. His, His victory becomes mine for free. All I need to do is ask. That's it. Ask. Just ask, and pardon is yours. Just ask, and the one who bore the wrath and curse of God, the one who bore the sting of death, he will bear. He will bear your sin away. His victory will become your victory. Just ask, and it's free. Thanks be to God, he gives us and he bestows upon us that victory for absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. It's his grace, isn't it? It's his gift. How can you settle the matter today? How can you know that when that trumpet sounds, you will be ready to join the great company of those who will be transformed? and bear glorified likeness like His, how can you do that? How can you know? You just take Christ's word and ask. Right? You put your faith in Him. You tell Him, God, save me because I can't save myself. I will not live without you, Jesus. Jesus. I can't make it without you. I am a guilty sinner. Save me. And he will settle the matter today. So that's the victory of our transformation. And we've seen this wonderful glorified body. We've seen the necessity. We've seen the victory. But what do we do in response to that? Well, there's a challenge there are implications. Look at the implications in verse number 58. What are the implications that we will have a resurrected glorified bodies? Therefore, that's the connecting word, isn't it? Don't you love it? Your pastor's always talking about English. Those little words that you ignored in English class. Therefore, so important. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing so we do that, and then you got that word knowing, and I wish I could show you in the Greek. In the Greek, that is a participle modifying, expanding on what we just said. We work knowing that your labor is not in vain. You know, some may, may be tempted to think uh, that since the resurrection day awaits, we can just sit back, take it easy, sip some iced tea, and, and just wait for Christ to turn, right? Some are tempted to think that. But not now is not the time to relax. Rather, now is the time to be firm and move forward. We need diligence today like we've never needed it before. And so Paul calls for the Corinthians to be resolute and loyal in their service to, to God. He calls for them and encourages them to be immovable. Let nothing move you. Let nothing move you. You know the church constantly faces pressure to to compromise its faith, doesn't it? And accommodate, the church is always being pressured to accommodate prevailing trends in the culture. Always we are. What was the pressure at Corinth? The pressure at Corinth was to compromise on the doctrine of the resurrection. That's why he spent so much time on it. But Paul understood that to weaken the go- the doctrine of resurrection was to undermine the gospel itself. There is no gospel if there is no resurrection, and he understood that. And so he was telling them to be steadfast, Im- un- immovable, under the pressure about the doctrine of the resurrection. You know, Christians can, can disagree over different points of interpretation. Just, th- just like I, I don't agree with some of my friends on uh, their view of prophecy or their view of election or any other thing such as that, when it comes to the fundamentals of the faith, we cannot budge. There are ever-present attacks on the inerrancy of the Bible, aren't there? There are ever-present attacks attacks and constant pressure to weaken the the bible's stance you know know where the biggest pressure is right now on on marriage and sexuality that's the biggest area of pressure on the church people are calling for the church to embrace their particular sinful tendencies as an essential part of who god made them to be you embrace my sin. That's who I am. My sin is who I am, is what they're saying. But sin never defines a man or a woman in Christ, does it? I mean, think about it. If you struggle with heterosexual lust, you don't, you don't embrace the title promiscuous Christian as your identity, do you? It's true of any any other number of sins. Would you want to be known as a thieving Christian? How about the lying Christian? Or the murderous Christian? We wouldn't accept any of those sins as a title. And yet, our culture wants Christians to self-identify as gay Christians. Right? That's an... That's an area of of pressure that we're facing now. You you may well be a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction or a desire to steal or desire to deceive or to hate. And if so, then the Bible calls you to repent and mortify it. You don't need to identify your life with it. Right? Right? steadfastness has a downside. And some of you have experienced this firsthand. Steadfastness has a downside. You want to know, know what it is? If you're resolute in a commitment to Christ, if, if our church remains faithful to the doctrines and practices of historic Christianity, then we're going to be accused, and you will be accused, of being mean-spirited, harsh, unloving, Oh, you can't be a loving Christian if you say that my sin is sin. Narrow-minded. Another favorite one is bigoted. We're bigoted because we don't accept people's sin, carte blanche. Because society has, has become tolerant of every belief, every worldview, every lifestyle, well, with the exception of Christianity. For someone to stand up and say, you know, wait a minute, this is wrong, seems bizarre to them, because you're supposed to accept everything in anyone. The church must identify unbiblical belief systems and ungodly behaviors as sinful. It has to be called out as sin. But we do it, listen, and this is the important part, we do it with compassion for those taken captive by it. That's the key. You call out the sin, and you're compassionate towards the one who's captivated by it. We identify sin. Why do we identify sin, by the way? We identify sin in order to call sinners to the Savior, right? And so we're steadfast and immovable, but we're also called to abound in the work of the Lord. That it means to strive, to, to excel in your service to Christ. Don't hold back. Don't give excuses. Be willing to take risks. Yes, you should have some idea of your gifts and abilities. Yes, you should know your limitations, And not drive yourself to complete exhaustion, but work with your utmost of devotion. Right? And why do we do that? Those who abound in the Lord's work have an encouragement and assurance that diligent labor for Christ is never wasted. Never. He says... In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Have you ever thought about this? Ever think about this? Have you ever spent what seemed like an inordinate amount of time preparing to give a defense of your faith or witness to someone or reach out and minister to somebody, and it seems like it was to no avail whatsoever? Remember the promise. He didn't say, He didn't say, remember that your successes in the Lord are not vain. He just says your labor. What does God call us to? Faithfulness. He calls us to faithfulness. The results are up to him. Remember that. Always abounding in the work of the Lord may not result in fruitfulness measured by crowds, by visible standards of success. Abounding in the work of the Lord means faithfulness. Our calling is to give ourselves fully to God's work, whatever and that may be, and, and whatever it may involve, the results are up to God's sovereign pleasure. We must remember that. We must remember that. We can't give ourselves to this kind of work, however, and this is so important. Don't miss this. We can't give ourselves to this kind of work unless we are energized by the hope of his resurrection by the hope of our resurrection and by the hope of his second coming the day of transformation the day we see jesus the day we become like jesus in a circle all the way back to the beginning of my sermon that's a way to be heavenly minded that you're very much earthly good right Lord, we thank you for the encouragement from Scripture, the wonderful encouragement that we will suddenly and immediately and fully be like Jesus Christ when that last trumpet sounds. What a blessing that will be. But Lord, in the interim, we thank you for the encouragement that we have, that our labor, you're not judging by our success. You're judging by our faithfulness and that none of our labor is in vain. Lord, we praise you and glorify you that for that. May we work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. In Christ's name, amen.